Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of the award-winning podcast, Entrepreneurs on Fire, and you're listening to the Excelsior Journeys with George Soroy, presented by the Right Pack Radio Podcasting Network. Prepare to ignite. Is there a burning desire within to share your creativity with the rest of the world? Do you insist on pursuing your passion by any means necessary? Then you are on an Excelsior journey, and you are not alone. Hello and welcome to Excelsior Journeys, brought to you by the Right Back Radio Podcasting Network. My name is George Saroy. Thank you for being here. And this is part one of a very special uh, pair of bonus podcasts. Um, now, originally, I was going to um, I was going to have um, a couple of agents here from uh, Metamorphosis Literary Agency, Amy Brewer and Patty Carruthers. Um, but because this is such a very busy time of year. Uh, for everyone with families, with getting ready for Christmas, with um, everything else that's going on. Um, what uh, what I've decided to do is um, push their interview back several weeks. Uh, so this will not only allow them a chance to breathe and be able to uh, get everything all squared away on their end before they uh, sit down and chat with me, but they're also going to allow for questions to be sent in to this show um, by listeners. So if you have a question for a literary agent, now this is not, um, will you take a look at my work? You know, like that's obviously a question that I'm sure a lot of people will ask. But um, if you have a, if you have a, an, another question uh, regarding, uh, regarding a, um, being literary agents, breaking into um, breaking into uh, the field with an agent, what an agent does, um, what you can do without an agent, what you know, like whatever your question may be, um, we'd love to hear it. So please uh, send in your questions. Uh, you can find uh, you you'll find a post up on my um, up on my Facebook page. Uh, which is George Soroy, and it's facebook.com slash Excelsior Books. Uh, you can find a post there. You'll be able to comment underneath that, and I'll be able to read off all of those questions that uh, that everyone may have. Um, so it's going to be a whole lot of fun getting to speak with them. But for this week, for uh, today's show, and also a uh, for a very special bonus show on this Friday, what you're going to hear is two different panels that were conducted over at Archon 42. Archon is a major um, science fiction and fantasy convention that's done every year in the St. Louis area. It's actually in Collinsville, Illinois, to be exact. Um, and this uh, this past year in October, uh, not only did I attend as a bookseller, but I also got to um, do three different panels and moderate two of them. It was a real thrill to be able to record the two panels that I did. Um, so you're going to you're going to hear from um, the first one that we did during the day, um, which is all about writing in different mediums. Um, so we talk about you know like how to adapt your writing for uh, for radio, for television, for a film, for a book, for um, for a play. There are so many different ways of telling your story these days. Um, and now that you're now that um, all you NaNoWriMo writers have finished your first draft, then you get to kind of look back and say like, well, do I want it to be a book or do I want it to be something else? Um, this is an opportunity for you to kind of listen in to, uh, to several different authors to discuss um, the various means of storytelling that can be done. Um, so you're going to hear from myself, George Soroy, you're going to hear from um, author Camille Fay. You're going to hear from uh, author illustrator Jennifer Stolzer, and you're also going to hear from author Brad R. Cook. So it's um, it's a great panel. Had a lot of fun with it. And when we come back from our commercial break, uh, we're going to jump right in. So looking forward to you listening, and always looking forward to your feedback. Uh, please find us on uh, at he'sgotit.com and. Uh, you can also find, um, please also 
subscribe, rate, review. Uh, just get involved with uh, with where, whatever channel you're listening to this podcast on. So looking forward to, uh, to all of your feedback, looking forward to your suggestions for future episodes, and um, I hope you have a great time. We'll see you in just a minute. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. If you've never been an Audible customer and want to see what they offer, just go to www.audibletrial.com slash Excelsior Journeys and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs, download a title for free, and start listening. It's that easy. Why Audible? Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, and entertainers. And with this free 30-day trial, you'll have your pick of it all. You can hear books of all genres narrated by Jim Dale, Stephen Fry, Will Patton, Alex Hyde-White, Jeff Brick, Neil Shaw, William Demerit, and even a few by me, George Soroy. So go to www.audibletrial.com slash Excelsior Journeys and start your own 30-day journey with Audible today. So um, just to go ahead and start things off, my name is George Soroy, as, as uh, Jen already said. Oh, sorry. Um, no, that's good. It's, um, that, works out, that works out perfectly. I am, uh, I am an author of uh, YA Sci-Fi. Um, I have... Two YA sci-fi novels that are currently out, Excelsior and Ever Upward. Currently selling copies of Ever Upward because I sold out of copies of Excelsior, um, which is always a good thing. So anyone who, uh, who gets, a, gets a copy from, from me over at Archon will also get the audiobook of part one for free and will also be put in the queue to get the audiobook for part two for free uh, once that is recorded. So it's a great deal. Just... Throwing that out there. <laughs> um, I also have a uh, five-part uh, sci-fi sports serial that is also available on ebook and paperback called From Parts Unknown. And um, I served as president of the Missouri Writers Guild in 2017. And, um, and I am currently running the uh, host and producer of uh, Excelsior Journeys podcast, which is part of the Right Pack Radio Podcasting Network. And three out of four of us are veterans of uh, Right Pack Radio, which is a weekly roundtable discussion in po- uh, as, in, as a podcast, showing um, we, we discuss like all different types of all different types of issues regarding writing and pop culture. Yeah, it's uh, many aspects of publishing, including yeah. you know writing for genre and marketing and self-publishing, traditional publishing. We have five seasons worth of Right Back Radio. I was just looking through my bag to see if I brought a brochure, but it's the one thing I entered this room without. So uh, if you want to pick up a, a little brochure card, my table is out the door and to the left, and I'll probably be dressed as Slando Malari, so identify me by my giant hair. And uh, so, yes, oh, Right Back Radio yep. is a thing that is real that I don't have a brochure for. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And uh, we'll, we'll just go down the table uh, ahead, introduce sorry. ourselves in Right Pack Radio style. So. In Right Pack Radio style. Yeah. Um, hello, everyone. My name is Jennifer Solzer. I'm a children's book author and illustrator. I also do comic books, uh, book covers, graphic design. Just uh, I just don't do websites. Every website I've ever designed looked like a PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> uh, but yes, uh, I've been serving the St. Louis area as a freelance illustrator for a little over eight years now. And uh, as uh, the purpose of this panel, uh, I'm going to talk about telling stories in words and pictures. Nice. Mm. Uh, I'm Brad R. Cook. I am the uh, author of uh, several steampunk novels, actually. Uh, The Iron Chronicles is a trilogy that uh, kind of goes around the world. Uh, It's set in uh, uh, Europe, Africa, and the third book is in uh, the Himalayas. Um, so it's out there. Check it out. It's very cool. You can find it all at bradartcook.com. I'm also a uh, cover artist and uh, writer of other things, non-fiction-y type stuff, all that fun stuff. Uh, and then the, uh, the other claim to fame I have is I'm histor- historian of St. Louis Writers Guild and uh, just stepped down as president several years ago. So, yay. <laughs> yes, I, I can. I can add that little yay. Uh, and a quick well. shout out. Uh, I am currently putting together. Uh, I'm on the panel, or I'm 
guess I'm the big guy on the panel, I guess, uh, who's doing Gateway Con, which is a thing that St. Louis Writers Guild does. It is a three-day writers conference, book fair, and writers retreat. Uh, check it all out at stlwritersguild.org. Uh, which you can find out more about St. Louis Writers Guild if you're interested. I forgot um, flyers for that as well. So you can yeah. come to my booth and get those too. <laughs> but yeah, it's a, it's a great thing. Check it out if you are a writer at all. Um, we have agents and it's three days of intensive writing uh, workshops. All right. My name is Camille Faye and I write Paranormal Romance, my series. Um, the first book, Voodoo Butterfly, I actually earned a publishing contract with my publisher because I placed in a national contest with it. So that's kind of how it made it into the publishing realm. And then I've got the sequel available in print. My third one in the series comes out in April. And writing the fourth one this semester, hoping to finish that by Christmas and then work on the fifth one, which will finish out the series. So um, it's fun, fun series to write because... Um, it's based in New Orleans, and I grew up in a haunted house, so I like spooky things, and I try to incorporate some of those in my book, some of those stories and experiences. Um, I also have served with the Missouri Writers Guild. I was secretary for a year and then helped, what is that called, secretary emeritus? Emeritus, yeah. So the second, second year was kind of helping the next woman take over as secretary, so, and I... I would highly recommend, since we're writers in here, that you find a great writing group that you love because that's where you're going to be with your people. And you need the support of your people because writing can be a challenging, um, tough business. That's and very just, lonely. Yeah, that's you know, the it, truth of it. So you need your people. So St. Louis Writers Guild. Actually, I just joined St. Louis Writers Guild, too. Welcome. Um, yeah. <laughs> and... Um, Still a member of Missouri Writers Guild, so it's just great to meet people, get out of your office, you know, stop writing for a little bit, talk some writing, talk some shop, meet people in person in the real life, so, yeah. So, this panel is called Storytelling, a Modern Take on the Oral Tradition, and basically the way that I saw that when this, when this uh, panel was presented to me was a means to show how different storytelling can be applied to all different types of media that are out there. Because originally there was, you know, just telling stories around a campfire. There was, you know, drawing uh, or writing things like on walls. You know, but now so much has become available to us. But at the same time, you have to make sure that your storytelling is adapted to fit that medium. Not everything can fit in the same peg. Um, so, you know, like what I, what I mean is things like literature, comics, film, television, theater, music, video games, poetry, it's all storytelling in all different ways. And so I think what we'll start off with is asking the panel what their preferred method of, you know, now granted we're all authors, so, you know, that's really where it all kind of starts, starts off with. I, speaking for myself, I became an author strictly um, out of necessity because I don't have the budget or the wherewithal or the, you know, the um, equipment to make a film on my own. Uh, there's a whole lot of uh, bells and whistles that go into that, and that is one thing that obviously stopped me from, you know, achieving my dream as of yet as a filmmaker. So I decided to tell my stories in a different way. But so one thing that you'll notice if you ever read any of my books is that they have kind of like a cinematic feel to them. And that's something that I've always really kind of gravitated toward. Um, I have very little patience when it comes to spending page after page after page of setting a specific scene. I just like to get right into the story. That's the way that I, the way that I am. So many other people uh, will read every single line of text that Stephen King has written about a wallpaper. You know, and, you know, ble you know, all the best for that. That's just not the way that I write. So um, to ask the, my other three colleagues here on the panel, what is, uh, what do you guys, what kind of uh, method do you guys like to use with your story storytelling? I suppose we'll just do a baton pass. I'll, sure. I'll start. Um, 
I'm, I'm an illustrator, so obviously I tell stories and pictures. I actually trained my majors in animation, so I, my goal was to go out and make cartoons. Um, when I realized that making cartoons in the modern age meant I either had to move to Singapore or move cold turkey out to LA and pray that someone noticed me while I worked at Subway for the rest of my life and lived in a one-room apartment, I decided that you know the dream was not as shiny as I thought it was. So I asked myself, what did I really want to do? I wanted to make stories for kids with vibrant and lively characters. So. Uh, as an illustrator, I tend to think in pictures, and I love to tell stories in pictures. That communicates to my, uh, my writing as well. This is a YA novel. It's a fantasy novel. Uh, there are illustrations inside. It's not fully illustrated. It's not a graphic novel, although I have done those. Um, but I think in terms of, um, I do my descriptions. I had uh, Kathleen, if you were here yesterday uh, on Friday for the diversity panel, uh, my, our fellow commentator on Right Pack Radio, Kathleen Kayembe, read my book, and she said, I noticed that when you describe a place, you describe it in terms of light and dark, like how the light looks and how things are moving through light. And I'm like, that's because as an animator, that was what I did. And so that's sort of, I, I suppose, uh, also sort of filmic in that, but I'm always thinking in terms of color and value and light and dark and negative and positive space and especially motion. You know, tell things in motion and in, when you're drawing, show things in motion and communicate emotion and physical motion through one image. So it's taught me to be very concise and it's taught me to focus on sort of the mind's eye and also acting in character because animation involves a lot of you being the actor for the character you're drawing. So I suppose that's how I translated my graphic element into uh, written form and also into pictures. Cool. Uh, so I start really young, uh, and I come from uh, a storytelling background. I actually started as a storyteller. Um, got into that, uh, oddly enough, through high school and kept doing that for a while. Um, but uh, out of that came a tradition of performing. Uh, and then I also uh, started off as a playwright. My first published kind of things were all plays. So for me, uh, you know, a story is something that is told, it's shared, it's meant to be kind of put out there. Um, so very much that's where I kind of draw from. Out of that, uh, in the modern era, <laughs> I am a plotter, which means that I craft the entire story ahead of time, and uh, then I sit down and I write it out. But as I like to say, that it's a movie that's playing out in my head. And it's why, for me, writing is never really a problem, because uh, it is a movie, and I'm literally just seeing it and putting it out there onto the page. Um, and I think part of the reason why I think of that is also coming from a, a movie-making background and actually an animation background. Uh, I would love to be an animator. I would love to do all of that, but uh, it takes even more time to, run, to write a book. So uh, that's scary to me. Um, you have to draw a picture every 24th of a second. I know. It's scary. I've, I've done it. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> I'm still working on a like two-minute-long piece. Ugh. <laughs> but yeah, so um, out of that, though, comes that visual knowledge. And, and that visual acuity, that sense of seeing it in my head, allows me to put it onto the page really easily. And then obviously having a theater background means dialogue is a lot of fun for me. Uh, and I love that kind of fast, quick pace. And that also comes from knowing I'm, a, I'm a, mostly a middle grade and uh, YA writer, so I mostly write for young people. Uh, and in that sense, it has to be fast-paced. So none of my novels are slow. Uh, none of my stuff is slow. It all has that kind of quick, um, you know, uh, what would be a quick cut uh, in a movie, a series of quick cuts in a movie. So yeah. Um, but I do tend to think of that, and I do tend to craft that way. However, uh, for me, words are a way of kind of controlling everything. So as a writer, um, there is definitely an element of that, uh, wanting to get make sure that my meeting comes across and, you know, visually it's in, left to interpretation. Uh, but with words, there's, there's only some interpretation. This is super interesting. We all have kind of like this background with videography, mm -hmm. illustration. It's awesome. So my book is also very visual in my mind. I come from, I have a journalism degree, and I did broadcast journalism, so I 
would carry that heavy, stinking camera, <laughs> like 50 pounds, and a huge box. Now they're much smaller. But, and you had to have lighting and all that. And so you had to set up your shot. You had to um, have variety. And so I think of film shots, too, whenever I'm writing as well. Um, the journalism piece of my background means that in my storytelling, I do want, it is fiction, but I want authenticity. So I didn't originally intend for my books to be about voodoo. Um, I actually had a dream, and this is also why my books are really visual, and I can see them. It would be great. Let's let's all have our books be turned into movies. We're going to make this pact right now. Um, <laughs> So I had this um, dream whenever I was visiting New Orleans with family. And there was a flash of millions of monarch butterflies floating and flying around the sky in New Orleans. There's a huge like fairy tale cathedral, St. Louis Cathedral. It's white, gleaming building, and they're just swirling all around and completely covering the building. So the building's orange and black rather than white. And um, so I had that little glimpse and then the next glimpse was of this woman walking through the streets of New Orleans at night which is super dangerous and you should never do that <laughs> and um, I just knew she wanted somebody to attack her because as soon as they touched her they would change from evil to good she was almost like luring them in so she could make them better people so that's the two glimpses I had and I started reading and learning more about New Orleans history and culture and voodoo's the magical element that we have here in, as Americans in the South. You know, J.K. Rowling has her brand of magic, you know, and then we have, this is ours, hoodoo and voodoo. So I wanted to learn more about that and get the facts straight because voodoo has been demonized so badly. I just didn't even know. I just wanted to find out. It's been demonized so badly in, the, in Hollywood, TV, movies. They don't it's it's actually a legitimate religion. It's not Satan worship, which I'll have so many people say, is it Satan worship? And I'm like, no, it's a it's a religion, and they believe in God and goodness and things. But like anything, people there are bad people in the world, and there are good people in the world. And some people do bad magic, and some people, real voodoo people, use use it to help and heal people. That's what they use it for. So. Huh. It was super interesting. <laughs> so there's no dark side to voodoo? There oh, is. no, there's totally a dark well, there side. Is. But there's yeah. also a good side. Yeah, yeah. people... And people, Hollywood especially. Yeah, Hollywood latches on to the bad part. But it's just like anything, you know? There might be like... Um, like televangelists. Yeah, there, yeah. Might, there might be like 99 great Christian people or 99 great Muslim people, and it's the 1% that that's what everybody wants to latch on to. And there's bad people and good people in the world. It doesn't matter what the label is or what system, but the system of voodoo isn't inherently evil and black magic. Actually, true practitioners, and I didn't want to go down this rabbit hole, but I'm just saying we can maybe talk later. But the thing is, I just wanted it to be as authentic as possible, so my journalistic storytelling kind of brought me to that place with my fiction. And I don't claim to be writing a nonfiction book about voodoo. Mine is supposed to be about magic and the storytelling through fiction. Um, I also tend to kind of dig at really big life problems and questions, like why are we here? What's our purpose? What is this whole life about? So a little bit more philosophical, because my... I, I, I was also a teacher, so like I have that teaching, probing, questioning kind of mind. And so I write these books to try and figure that out for myself and also maybe have the audience think about those too. So that's kind of the mixture that my storytelling takes is from that journalistic wanting to do research and find out the facts, find out the truth, and then um, the same with teaching too, want to find the truth. So um, I'm going to kind of tack on what uh, what everyone was saying before, and then, Camille, you actually got us going in a really good direction here. So, okay. um, since everyone else was talking about their uh, particular degrees, where they, you know, how they graduated from college, I, um, I went to school at Marymount Manhattan College up in New York studying theater. And I studied, originally went up there for acting. And when I did not get into the BFA acting program, I was able, I had to stay in the 
BA theater program that wound up being a blessing in disguise for me because I wound up taking a lot more writing classes and kind of fell back in love with writing. And I also wound up taking a couple of classes of playwriting. And when you're doing playwriting and then the, ver uh, then the very next year you're doing a class called Writing for Television, you learn very well how those, you know, how those different media really uh, play against each other, really, because yes. you can see um, the the best examples I you know like to like to use when it comes to differentiating the different kind of media is looking at movie musicals, mm -hmm. because you can look at say um, someone like Tim Burton, who is a devout film director who knows how to use that medium to its fullest potential and give us a wonderful reinterpretation of Sweeney Todd. And then you have the director, Susan, uh, I believe it was Susan Seidelman, who was the um, director of the producers on Broadway, who was also tasked to be the producer's uh, uh, film adaptation for 2005. And basically what she did was she just took this and went like that. And that was pretty much it. And it wound up being a lesser in interpretation of it because it actually kind of, speaking as for myself, it kind of soured me on to, you know, like on the, the actual movie because I was looking forward to seeing how it was, how the whole film medium was going to be played with. And some of the best movie musicals that are out there have been able to use their particular medium to their fullest potential. Um, so, but uh, another thing that uh, Camille was talking about was um, certain moments that inspired different moments in her book, certain uh, concepts. Um, I've spoken at length about um, the origins of Excelsior. I'll leave that until, until anybody else wants to actually ask me. <laughs> but uh, what I will do is I'll talk about a specific thing on, that, uh, that took place in my sequel, Ever Upward. Now granted, this is YA science fiction, so there's not too much that can really kind of play out in terms of real life. But one of the things that I did, one thing that I kept in mind was that my last job that I had in New York before I left and moved to St. Louis was I worked at Top of the Rock, which is the observation deck of Rockefeller Center in New York City. The best view of New York City you will ever see. And I'm not just saying that because they paid me. <laughs> They haven't paid me since 2011. I can say whatever I want, but I will say, yes, it is the best view. They have, on the 70th floor, they have a wide-open 360, no-windows view where you are standing on the, on the top level. You are looking out at Central Park, and then you turn around, and there's the Empire State Building staring you right in the face. And it's a wonderful, wonderful view. You know, like a lot of people say, like, no, go to the Empire State Building. And that way you can see a little bit more because it's bigger. It's like, no, you go to Top of the Rock and you can look at the Empire State Building <laughs> because it's a better looking building than Rockefeller Center. Rockefeller Center is basically a platform with, that's cement. That's pretty much what it is. And NBC. Um, but, what, um, but one of the things that I realized while I was working up there was it would be really cool to see a sword fight up here on the 70th floor of Rockefeller Center. And then I realized that that was going to be a major plot point in my book, Ever Upward. So as you can see, my cover designer, who was kind of a genius, um, used that to her potential. That is the view of Rockefeller Center. Um, not with the swords or the orb behind it, but everything else. <laughs> and so one of the things that I realized, and this is something that we, all, we always want to keep in mind when we're, do, when we're telling our stories, we can tell the most fantastical types of stories, but you also have to have a little bit of verisimilitude in there. There has to be some form of believability that you need to use as your grounding technique. And one of the things that I realized that I asked myself when I was uh, working on this, this moment was, how is Excelsior going to get the sword past security? Because you have to go through a lengthy security procedure in order to get up there in the first place. And they're not, you know, like, I've worked with these guys. They're not keen with, you know, like, hey, there's a sword in your backpack. <laughs> so I asked, actually, a colleague about this. I just kind of was, you know, just venting about this and saying how it was kind of stopping me in, in the process. And then she goes, there could be an event up there. And if there is an event up there on the 67th floor, what they do is they block off most of the 67th floor to the public so that way the public can just go upstairs and have the 69th and 70th floor to, to themselves, but the 67th floor is blocked off for this party. 
And that's when I realized that, uh, that my character would be part of an event that goes up there because when they go up there, they're going through separate elevators. So they're not going through security. They're just going straight up. And that wound up being a great technique for me in order to give it the extra believability to make that scene happen. So I ask both, uh, you know, Jen and Brad to add on to what Camille was saying before, like what were specific moments in your book that you, or books that you latched onto? Uh, I'll, I'll go first. I, uh, I think, uh, as I said before, I think in pictures, um, there's a, uh, there's a, a thing with my, my novel Threadcaster, there's a collection of, of gross diseases that we're trying, they are, they're curses and they're, we're trying to cure them. And uh, the whole concept of the book started with an image I had as an artwork. I'm like, I, I got this picture in my head of a drawing I wanted to make of a girl with tears flowing down her face, but no emotion. Like, she wasn't sad. She was just weeping buckets, but she had no sadness. And I'm like, okay, who is this girl? Why is she like this? And I saw the image pretty clearly in my head. Like, it was like, this would be a really cool picture. And, you know, I drew it during class. Like, this is so cool. And didn't pay attention to class at all. Um, and uh, I started writing it in college. So it was, it was probably one of those gen eds, and I wasn't, didn't have to anyway. But... Um, so it's like, why would she be this way? Why would this happen? It's like, is it a mental problem? Does she not feel emotion? Is that maybe she's filling up with water and this is just how it comes out. It's just coming out of her eyes and it's probably coming out of like, you know, her nose and her ears. It's just, it's, she's just filled up with it and it's just coming out this way. And I'm like, well, what happens if you get filled up with fire? What happens if you get filled up with stone? And then I wrote a book. <laughs> so, uh, so I think in pictures and to, as I'm developing stories, you know, this is a book with text in it, but character specifically, I always have to draw a picture of the character before I know who they are. I have to look them in the eye, and the only way I can do that is if I draw them. So when I'm brainstorming about it, I'm also a plotter, like Brad's a plotter, so I have to kind of know what's going to happen next. Uh, if I have a scene that's difficult or a character I don't know yet, I take a moment, you know, on whatever scrap of paper I have to, to draw it out, you know, just kind of rough so I can see it. And when I can see it, then I can write it. So that, I suppose that's a moment. It was more of, a, of an inspiration striking me through my other talent. Uh, for me, uh, Iron Horseman was the first in the, uh, the Iron Chronicles. Not my first novel, but... Uh, the first one that got published uh, by a publisher and all that cool stuff. So um, that book actually came out of the entirety of the novel. The entirety, and I knew I wanted to write steampunk. I knew I wanted to write an adventure. I knew I wanted it to star uh, two teenagers, a, a boy and a girl, and I knew I wanted to flip them, uh, make her the sword fighter and him the guy who knew all the languages and you know didn't really want to go on the adventure and all that. Um, <laughs> You know, I knew all that ahead of time, but the, the one that really got me going was this kind of uh, vision in my head of uh, a pair of airships blasting each other in the sky like they were pirate ships of, you know, on the sea, and what that would entail, and then throw them into a storm, and what would happen with all the water and all the rain and the wind and the craziness, and, you know, uh, I have a flying background, so... You know the what wind currents would do and all that kind of fun stuff. So, uh, out of that came this notion of uh, you know these two giant airships fighting in the sky. Awesome, great visual. And then it was a question of how did they get in the sky? Why are they in the sky? What are they running from? What are they running to? And all mm -hmm. of that kind of stuff. So, really, out of that is where I came out of uh, the where the the Iron Horseman really came out of. So that was really kind of a cool way of framing the book around this one giant scene that takes place. It's my favorite scene in the book still to this day. Uh, and there's a lot of cool scenes in the book, but still to this day, the, the maelstrom that they fly through fighting is just awesome. Uh, but real quick, I'm going to throw out some you brought up TV. Uh, in terms of storytelling, uh, the three-act structure of plays, and I think this is one of the reasons why uh, theater is such a great little harbinger of pushing these kinds of writers out, is the way we all write. Um, that three-act structure that you see. Now, I will say with television, and this is where you can get into different types of storytelling, they don't play by the three-act structure. They play by a four-act structure, depending upon if it's an hour long or a big old series or whatever. Uh, but watching the way that like your hour-long police procedural will write their story 
And the way that your half-hour sitcom writes its story, and the way that your Game of Thrones that's going to tell an epic over an entire season, how they tell their stories, is a great way to learn kind of the various modern takes on all the various different types of storytelling that are out there. Because TV uses so many different types. And it's using even more now that Netflix yeah. has uh, has Netflix has their own original series. Hulu has yeah, their original series. Now we can series. choose Amazon your own Prime. adventure. It in really TV. is. Yeah, it's, crazy. it's just a crazy world. Crazy time it, to be alive. It really is. I mean, like um, you know, just uh, just a, a quick um, just a quick dig- uh, digression here. Uh, one of the things that Amazon is doing right now is they have uh, they have made a deal to air Thursday Night Football. And one of the great things that they do, which is, you know, like as, as a football fan, this is a wonderful, wonderful thing. They offer different commentators. So you don't have to just listen to Joe Buck and Troy Aikman. You can listen to Hannah Storm and Andrea Kramer doing, the, you know, like doing the commentating. And they do a great job with it. You can listen to, um, you know, UK commentators, which is, again, very interesting. And you have, like, you know, you have all these different options now. Because of the technology that you know that is cur- that is now available to us, um, so one of the th- another thing that um, that I wanted to kind of throw out there is we're talking about you know like technology and the advancement and everything. One thing that we've seen advance throughout the years has been video games. Mm-hmm. Um, everything is you know started out either you know just on like one single screen. Then you have games like Super Mario Brothers, which I believe was the first side-scrolling screen uh, game, and then you have other, you know, then you had, you know, like stories like Ninja Gaiden, you know, like basically like telling a story in a six-act structure. Like literally, it says like Act One, Act Two, Act Three, and there are interludes along the way. No one makes it to game way. Act Six though. No. I'm sorry. Ninja Gaiden is very difficult. It's a very it difficult game. <laughs> it is. <laughs> you make it out of Act Two, uh, you have my, you know. I'm dying. <laughs> well, although you know, like uh, playing the NES Classic, you know, like I've been able to brush up on it a little bit. Yes. One thing that I thought what came to mind with this panel, and I was thinking would be is a universal story that has been translated to all these types of media, which would be something like an old fairy tale. Mm, and yep. how it's changed in each of the different medias and interpretations, starting with an oral tradition. Something like, you know, Red Riding Hood or Cinderella, something mm-hmm. that's been translated and, and put into different forms. And I guess I was wondering what you guys thought of that, or how you see them change when it goes from one media to another. Um. <laughs> I was gonna say thanks to the way licensing works, a lot of that's coming back around now, well, and you can write for it again. But we, and we've also we've also already kind of seen that already in in our modern in our modern stories because one of the biggest ones that I that I've I've seen like throughout the in the past like 50, you know like twenty years or so was how the Matrix was used because the Matrix started off as a movie and then it became the Animatrix, so you had like a bunch of you know short animated uh, films all coming together into one feature. Then you have the Enter the Matrix video game. Then you have uh, a Matrix role-playing game. And then you have, you know, the two sequels on top of that. So, like, uh, and also books, I believe, have also been commissioned from that. So Disney's made an entire thing out of doing this. Right. Oh, yeah. So oh, Disney well. just loves to take whatever old, you know. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. go ahead. Yeah. I'll go back, sorry. Yeah, sorry. Right back rules, this, so. uh, uh, in Right Pack Radio, we throw out our R for reserve. Oh. It's like, I have things to say. Yeah. So that everyone can be like, oh, yeah, you have things to say, so we don't end up yelling at each other. And I, and I haven't been on the show for a while, so my, you know, my R is a little like rusty. R. So. R. Um, uh, I love I love that question, and I love uh, you mentioned Red Riding Hood specifically, and I'm like okay, I know exactly what I'm gonna say. Uh, Red Riding Hood, like the story of Little Red Riding Hood, whether it's specifically Little Red Riding Hood or the many different forms that exist in all different cultures all over the world, uh, it's the 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 core of that story is don't stray from the path, you'll get eaten by a wolf. And uh, those stories were told, and those types of stories were told to everyone to teach lessons that you will remember. Because as human beings, we experience life through narrative. We're, we're a flocking species. We learn from each other and we adapt to each other. And so a narrative with a character in it that then learns the lesson for us, we all go, oh, yes, I remember. I felt those feelings. So Little Red Riding Hood, don't stray from the path. You'll get hit, eaten by a wolf. Uh, the wolves change throughout the years. Who's the wolf? Uh, the, was the wolf bandits? You'll get, get eaten by bandits. Uh, is the wolf a sexual predator now? 
Um, and the, we have oral tradition, we have written, we have picture books for little kids, we have reimaginings for adults. Uh, I don't know if anyone, this was years ago, did anyone play The Path? It's a video game, it's an independent video game. It's Little Red Riding Hood, and it's all about what will happen when you stray from the path. So you can play that game. as little. You play as Little Red Riding Hood going to Grandma's house, and you can stay on the path the whole time and finish the game in about five minutes because you stayed on the path, you went to Grandma's house, you got eaten by a wolf. Um, but if you stray off the path in different parts and you venture forward, you run into other characters, you run into set pieces, you learn about yourself, you learn about Grandma, you learn about the wolf. Uh, the wolf is actually an elder tour. That's pretty cool. He turns. If you stay out on the away from the path for too long, you get to Grandma's house. It's like an M.C. Escher painting. It has transformed because you ventured into your own psyche for a while. Like it's so creative, and in that that little nut, which is a very modern reinterpretation of the same story, don't stray off the path. Um, it's, it allows us to learn about ourselves and about each other in so many different ways based on a personal experience because writing, you know, writing for games is writing for, is like a collaboration with someone you've never met before. I did, uh, I worked in games for a while out of college as an animator and, um, and helped build games with a local game company called Happy Badger Studios, which is still in operation, you can check them out. Um, but when you're writing for games, you're really writing an experience for someone else to have, and you can't anticipate what they're going to take from it. You just have to give them the tools to write their own story in a lot of cases. So that's, a, that's an excellent like way to think about storytelling. Yeah, I'm going to pick up where that left off, too. <laughs> so, like, why do we want to read the series so fast? Why do we want to binge watch on Netflix and all this? Why do we want to do stories? I'm sure sitting around the campfire at night, the tribe would, like, Let's, what kind of story are you going to tell? What's the story for tonight? So, for one, it's entertaining. It can teach lessons. I've actually talked to my target audience, too. Um, and it was very interesting. I would say 60 to 70% of them, um, I just, you know, kind of did this informal survey with them. Uh, I think there was about 25, 30 people that got involved with that. And about, like I said, 60 or 70% of them said they want to escape from reality. And one of them in particular was a female cop. And she likes reading paranormal, that's what I do, because she would rather read about made-up monsters because she has to deal with real monsters in her real life. So it's like it can inform, it can teach, it can be entertaining but it also allows us that escape. And so I'm imagining back whenever it was oral storytelling, yes, it was doing all those things, but it also allows, we're human, we're not robots. We don't need to like input the information and <laughs> that's enough for us. We want it in an entertaining way that like makes us use our imagination and brings us to that transcendental place that you don't just get in the real life. You know, real world can be kind of meh. A lot of days are meh, so. We get that excitement going, so yeah. yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah, uh, Brad, you said you had like a theater background, and I had one too. And I'm wondering, what did you think of uh, the old radio plays uh -huh. versus where we had with like, well, Big Finish is the big one, but there's a lot of audio dramas, but it's based on a, a show. But what do you think? Is it is the differences or is it just a I love them thing? actually. Uh, so audio dramas, uh, if you have not had a chance to, my favorite is The Shadow. Uh, the old episodes of The Shadow, um, and there are a ton more, so do go search them out. Um, so yeah, for me, um, it is very much, uh, it is storytelling without, it's, an, it's a unique form of storytelling because there is no visual. Uh, you get the audio cues, so you don't have to say someone's walking across the floor, you can just have the clumpity clomp on the floor. <laughs> um, however, you do have to throw out some audio cues um, and it's, it's, uh, I, I equate it to writing the difference between first and third person. Because when you're writing first person, there are things you can't include. There are things your character won't experience because they're not in the room at that time. And if you're writing third person, sure, you're great. You can totally include that, jump into another person's perspective, have a whole chapter on it. But in first person, you can't. And radio uh, it has that same limitation. There are things you can do and there are things you can't do. 
because the person's only going to hear it in an audio form. Uh, but I love it, actually. It's a really great way if you ever uh, you know, want to have some fun, write up some radio dramas, write as a script. Uh, it's a really great way of doing it. Um, yeah, just to, just to add, on, add on to that as well, another great venue is audiobooks. Yes. Um, and using basically the same sort of fashion because you are telling that story. And you want to make sure that, that, is, that that's as much of an experience as listening to an audio play. Obviously... A nice um, dramatic reading is very good. Yeah. I mean, it's... Uh, granted, there are, you know, there are some audio books that are out there, especially, say, like the Star Wars ones, that have the, the Lucasfilm library at their disposal. So they have, they have the John Williams score, and they have all of the great Ben Burtt sound effects. Yeah. And they use those a lot. To you know, like, and somehow you know, somehow they've been able to find that happy medium between immersing you in that world and being and overpowering you with it, and not letting the story itself go. Um, as an audiobook narrator myself, I don't have those things at my disposal. I don't even have the music at my disposal. All I have is my voice, and so I need to make sure that I am telling, that I'm taking the listener on a ride as much as possible. Um, in that same sort of fashion as a radio drama, only without the extra sound effects. So it becomes an ex, you know, like it becomes a really interesting task. But it's something that is also a lot of fun when you pull it off. So and next is acapella. <laughs> <laughs> in a lot of places, uh, audiobooks are the new form of radio drama because a lot of audiobooks actually incorporate multiple actors, yeah. and and you know we mentioned sound effects, but also casting. For an audiobook, uh, you have a narrator, but then you have a different person playing the male lead and a different person playing the female lead, and it's edited together. And some people decide to do it that way. And, and there are others that you know, like that, pull it off as one person, mm -hmm. and also either you know just give like little inflections to reflect a male a male voice, a female voice, a more authoritative voice, a villain, mm -hmm. you know, just all those types of those types of of, uh, of voices. Best example out there would be Jim Dale, who does the Harry Potter books, mm -hmm. because he's got a catalog of voices, and it's just this one guy. <laughs> I've listened to all seven books, and only one time did I hear him assign the, the wrong voice to a character. And it was just like one little line. Jim Dale. Yep. D-A-L-E. Yep. Yes? Uh, what you brought up earlier, um, you were talking about uh, point of view a little bit with the, uh, how the media has changed and the storytelling and stuff. And somebody mentioned that, and the narrator and the storyteller. And it made me realize, when we have the oral tradition, the storyteller really is part of the story. You're, you're, you're looking at them from the visual cues. You're looking for their emotions, the voices, stuff like that. Uh, and as we've gone to more modern, the storyteller, in a lot of cases, has disappeared. Or you become more of a background. You don't, they're not an active part of the story. And I was wondering how that has changed how we perceive a classic story. Because that's universal, okay? We know the story. It hasn't changed too much, but our perception of it has with the advent of the technology. So we have the oral tradition where we're looking at the storyteller to see how Red Riding Hood is scared, uh -huh. how Red Riding Hood is reacting to it, or another story. And then now you talk about the audiobooks. Now the storyteller is maybe a narrator, but we're also hearing their voices. We're hearing the sound effects. Then you get to your visual media with comic books. And now maybe you have a little blurb in the corner that's setting the story or narrator, but now you have a picture or it's drawn on the wall or in, in the early times. So I was just, an observation from what you talked that made me realize how important the narrator used to be and maybe his voice is disappearing a little bit more with more modern technology. Uh, I just happened to watch a, uh, a video essay about this last night. I got oh, super go. excited when you said that. I'm like, oh, I can contribute. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, the, the essayist is George Rockel Schmidt. He's on YouTube. Uh, check him out. He's very, uh, he's very knowledgeable, and he has a great presentation style. Um, but he was talking about remakes, and specifically talking about remakes that were successful in different ways. And the, the ones he pointed to was Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Yes, especially and the 78 one. The 78 one it was a great reinterpretation of the, and both, you know, it was a book first. It was just called The Invasion. 
Um, so there was the, what, what year did the first one come out? 1958, I think. He's the one with the brain. <laughs> um, so the, the 58 one was about, you know, the Red Scare and communism. But the 78 one was sort of like about the fallout of that, the paranoia of having gone through the Cold War. And that was the same story, you know, the same beats, the same source, but it, the director and the Times brought a new interpretation to the, the medium. The and same all, with... And it also tied in Watergate. Yes. Because Watergate brought up that, you know, like, you can't trust, you can't trust anyone. Uh-huh. You know, and feeling. The, uh, the other example he gave was True Grit. Mm. So there was the, the old True Grit uh, from classic, you know, classic Western, and then there was the new one that just came out with Jeff Bridges in it. And uh, that was the Coen Brothers, I believe. Yeah. And the they're both also from a book called True Grit. And the that um, he pointed out, uh, George was analyzing the two back to back, and he was pointing out that the the classic one was leaning far more into Western tropes and giving what people expected from a Western. Uh, they didn't have the technology that we have now, so the night scenes were day for night, mm-hmm. you know. And there was a little bit more more schlockiness to it. Yeah. Um, but the, the new interpretation with the Coen brothers, is apparently they specifically said they wanted to bring the grit back to true grit. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot more, you know, gritty violence and, um, and you know, Rooster's a, a lot more, you know, he's, he's less endearing so fast and everything. And that was them adding specifically, they're, you know, them as the storytellers, the directors, they're, they aren't a face any longer, mm-hmm. but they're bringing their intention to the same material uh, done by two different directors, but they specifically wanted this to be a visceral experience versus a, a Western-esque experience. So that's, that was, I thought that was, that was tied in. <laughs> Just to uh, add, tack on to what Jen was saying before I uh, pass it off to yeah. Camille, um, another one to definitely compare between the original and remake is The Fly. Oh, yes. Uh, because in you have yeah. the 1958 one, which is about like this scientist who you know is trying to basically like tamper in God's domain and is punished for it, you know, by basically just disassembling himself and reassembling himself from one pod to another and then something horrific going wrong. And then you have the 1986 David Cronenberg version Uh where you have the same sort of thing happen, but at, at the same time, what he was able to inject in it, in a sense, was someone basically like losing control of their body and ve- and he was able to bring in some very uh dark elements that he w- and he even said like he was thinking of cancer you know like when mm-hmm. when he when he did that when slow process yeah mm-hmm. and just how how it, that played out so it created a very disturbing and a very um very hard hitting type of reaction that was completely different from this um you know, almost like a schlocky version of, you know, like just putting a fly's head and a fly's hand in, you know, like, you know, on a scientist's head, you know, like and making it something incredibly different. You know, so there, there is a case for, there is a case for remakes, you know, like every now and then. Well, it's two different Those types of horror. Those movies are one of them, yeah. It was two different types of horror. It was the monster horror, and then it was the, body the personal horror. body horror. Yeah. yeah. Camille, did you have a... Yeah, so I'm thinking about this idea of narrator, and I don't know if you guys ever watched Sex in the City. <laughs> Sex yep. in the City. And so in the first season, they had Carrie Bradshaw stop acting and look straight at the camera and narrate something that she was thinking directly to the camera. And then I noticed in the second season they didn't do that. So it makes me wonder if the readers, the viewers, don't like a narrator. And that's why it's kind of taken a back seat. And what we're talking about with, like, um, action... My big thing is action and dialogue, action and dialogue. Like, I don't want long pages and long paragraphs of description like they used to write back in the 1700s and 1800s. Like some of that stuff, you could just like, oh, <laughs> uh, you couldn't, you couldn't keep up with the story. But like you're saying, if there was somebody actually, and it does work like in theater, because if there's a narrator that's there in person, they're embodying that thing. But the narrator is almost like a passive thing as far as us reading or watching a TV show or watching a film, because we just don't want it. But if the person's right there, then it makes sense. I think so. It must be in the medium that it's in, whether we, we accept the narrator or reject the narrator. 
Um, I noticed there's another panel the other night, or yesterday, and I, I remembered something and I brought it up, and you just mentioned it too. Mm -hmm. uh, and now I'm just talking out as an audience member, sorry. Mm -hmm. well, <laughs> please do, please do. Yeah, no, uh, the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, uh -huh. which mm -hmm. is a wonderful series. Uh, some of them written uh -huh. by Gary Fisher, yeah, a brilliant yeah. writer. Mm -hmm. uh, in the original, when they came out, there was an old indie that introduced what the moral of the story is, what the story was going to be about. He was like, sit down with my staff, I'm going to tell you this story from when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, he looks like, he's a narrator, he's a storyteller, he looks aged and beaten up, he's missing an eye. They re-released the series in the early 2000s, I think, and they cut out all those scenes. Mm. It's just wow. the scenes from when he was young in World War One, huh. And it changed my perceptive, and I didn't enjoy them as much. It, the framework was gone, the narrator was mm -hmm. gone. And I guess maybe it's a response to people not yeah. wanting the narrator. Yeah. To me, it lessened the story. It's That's interesting that you brought it up, because I never really thought about it, but I was very aware whenever they stopped cutting to Carrie's narration of what was happening in the scene and I didn't dislike it but it must have been unlikable enough that they said no we're not doing it they switched it, it up to journal writing she started doing like typing at the computer yeah, yeah. that's right at the end, which is the same thing they do with Scully mm -hmm. which is a really typical way of doing that narration mm -hmm. yes ma'am um, I was thinking this just before you gave the um, Watergate um, analogy mm -hmm. and I was thinking as this panel's talking about how the audience and how things change in their environment and in social social systems, how that possibly changes the way a story is told because of the climate. Mm -hmm. how, how much do you think is affected um, with the outside world and the inside world that you're trying to create? Um, I can I can definitely add to that uh, add an answer to that with my own personal experience because I'm about to start up a series that is uh, that's been sitting in my head since I was in fourth grade. Um, obviously, the what it was back then is much different than what it is now. But one of the things that I was really thinking about is um, is how you know this new element that's been introduced in my story is like a brand new form of prejudice that's, you know, that all of a sudden is, you know, kind of spiking what, you know, like what was, what things were like in the past. But as of uh, recently, I realized that there would be no, you know, spiking of it or anything like that. It would just be the last piece of a continuing pile of what's going on because what I've been seeing the past, you know, like 20 years or so is this ever-increasing tribalism that's going on in our political uh, spectrum exactly. and so like we're seeing that constantly going up and up and up and this element that I you know that I'm bringing in and everything would just be the one thing like right on top of that it wouldn't be oh we're, we're better people now we got rid of that but then this <laughs> other thing came in and that's even bigger no it's just you know like it's just going to keep getting worse and the only the only sci-fi you know like uh, thing that's out there right now that I can see us as a way of kind of like wiping things out is Star Trek. Because like only, you know, like would there be some actual alien stuff, you know, touching down in front of everybody and not being dubbed fake news or anything. Like that's the only way that we can get around what's been, what's, uh, what we're dealing with today. Um, I was thinking the exact same thing because The Hunger Games was on. Oh, that's our thing. Yep. Um, so the Hunger Games is all about this elite class in the capital, and then all the lowly people have to do their jobs and stay in line. And I was, I was talking with, um, I had a couple friends who were here with me this weekend, and I said, this whole dystopian thing got so popular because this is, this is how people are feeling right now mm -hmm. for the yeah. last 20 years, 30 years, right. that their representatives could care less. and. This has been building for a long time, so it's very interesting that this whole dystopian, um, this whole dystopian market just flourished in that kind of an environment. Right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. It keeps coming up dystopian. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Because again it's easier. People can can much you know, are happy. You know, like are perfectly fine un, uh, believing the fact that you know that the government is turning us into people into food that we're eating. You know, like it's. Right, exactly. You know, like it's you know, people can believe that much more than 
yay, we're shiny, happy, and, you know, like utopian, meet George Jetson. You know, it's not like that. You know. <laughs> right. right. Uh, we're down to the last five minutes, so this is my, uh, my, my closing statement on that. I would like you all to think of something that I think we all have in common. Batman. <laughs> think about how Batman has changed from his initial introduction in comics and his initial introduction in television especially to what we're looking at now. Uh, let's say in the Justice League movie. Uh, there were, and think about when those things happened. When did we get Batman Begins? That was in response to 9-11. Mm -hmm. Terrorism. This dark feeling of being attacked. We need a vigilante to come and who's not going to be goofy and funny. Who's not working with the cops. We feel like we're alone. And Batman is here to uh, completely ruin his vocal cords at somebody <laughs> and, uh, and make them, you know, it's like, and, and cut through all that red tape that, you know, Gordon can't cut through. And that wasn't the way it was when he was first introduced. And that's not the way he is now. Now he's trying to be this sort of like, hey, you know, it's, you know, the Justice League has a lot more issues than just, you know, what happened to Batman and that. But, um, but Batman, in the current incarnation of him in DC, you know, cinematic universe, is one that's like, you know, he's, he's here and he's just, he's trying to joke around a little bit more. And he's not the serious, always, you know, a minute from crying Batman any longer. <laughs> because we're weary of that. We've become weary of the grim dark, and now we're trying to move into that. You know, it's uh, yeah. things are bad, but like we can smile about it. And that's also a DC Marvel thing. That too. Yeah, on a whole too. other panel. Yep. So, uh, that Superman. Look what we had before, and now look. Remember the not before Batman vs Superman, but right before that. Oh, Man of Steel. Man of Steel. Yeah. Yeah. Man of Steel. Superman ever do that? Yeah. Uh, I know we're Indian, and I just want to point yeah, out that Batman Returns, we were talking about different perspectives from different storytellers. Uh -huh. Batman Returns, the old one with, you know, the Penguin and Catwoman, is actually based on an old episode of the Campy Batman TV series. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. There's an absolute campy episode about it, and, and Tim Burton just took it his own way. Uh -huh. Completely different. Very different, different way. Yeah. <laughs> when you have the writer of Heathers, you know, working on the script... You're, you're going to expect weird things to happen. So, <laughs> thank you so much, guys, for for coming out. We'll, we're going to all be available to speak a little bit more. And thank you very much for being good sports and letting me record this. <laughs> and uh, fellow writers, please stick around for the alternate pass to publishing, which is going to start in here immediately. At two. At two. At two o'clock. No, at two o'clock. So no, not immediately. And not we'll immediately. be recording now as well. So you got uh, you got two chances to uh, be on a podcast. Thank you guys, good job. Thank you.